Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the rocks. This week is our 100th episode, and we had the privilege and pleasure of talking to Dr. David T. Rubin. Dr. Rubin needs very little introduction, so please go to the show notes to learn more about him. But since this is Dr. Rubin and our 100th episode, we took the liberty of making a supersized episode. Please hang on after our conversation with Dr. Rubin to hear our reflections on 100 episodes. Thank you so much for all that you do to support us. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia. And we have to start by saying cheers to our 100th episode. 100. And to celebrate our 100th episode, we are absolutely delighted, ecstatic, over the moon to be joined by Dr. David Rubin. Dr. Rubin, welcome to the show. I am honored to be here and for your 100th episode. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. We are pretty proud, I think, at this point because (laughs) we thought it was just going to be the two of us talking to each other. Turns out other people want to talk to us. And you've had a lot to say all this time. (laughs) You'd think we'd run out of things to say. (laughs) Never. Apparently never. (laughs) Apparently never. Well, Dr. Rubin, again, we are so excited to hear your story and uh, learn more about your work. But our very first unprofessional question to you is, what are you drinking? Well, I bought a new Nespresso machine for my wife for Hanukkah. And then she said, you know, you bought this for yourself. (laughs) And we unboxed it this morning. And I'm having my first cup of new Nespresso as opposed to Keurig. And we both were happier with this choice because they recycle their pods. So there's my first message to the audience. Recycle. Yes. I love it. Well, that is an excellent Hanukkah present to give to your wife and yourself as well. Robin, what about you? I have multiple beverages this morning and I'm going to say it's in honor of Dr. Rubin, but (laughs) I am drinking my hazelnut coffee with my cream. I've had a rough couple of weeks, Alicia, as you know, I'm drinking some Cape Farms, not sponsored by, but I'm drinking some Cape Farms to help out my uh, intestines in my J pouch. And I've got some water. I just was listening to Michelle Rubin's episode this morning. Do you have a snack that you're eating while you're drinking this? <laughs> no, I don't have a snack. And Michelle will just have to at me afterwards. <laughs> she probably will. Uh, we, should we do the disclaimer now that Michelle Rubin and I are not knowingly related, but everyone yes. we are? I think that's probably wise because, yes, yeah. I did just mention her in the context of you being here. So, yes, yeah. Michelle Rubin and you are not related. But we work but- together. She's our incredible um, and senior advanced practice provider and works in the surgery department and has obviously a credible expertise and pouch mm-hmm. expertise. There was a time when she used to say that we were married as a joke to people and tell stories about how we sometimes had our boarding passes mixed up on flights when we were traveling to conferences. Now she tells people that she's my daughter, which is hilarious because I was a medical student working with her. And I guarantee you that it is physiologically and chronologically (laughs) possible for her to be my daughter. Just for the record. Also, she did. We did not record that piece, but she did tell us the boarding pass story. Just as a note, yes. uh, we didn't I know, use that. I know Michelle really well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> know her stories. 
<laughs> Alicia, yes. what are you drinking? And like you, I have multiple beverages. So I have a latte and then I also have just some English tea, just black tea with some milk. Anyway, next question for you, Dr. Rubin, tell us your IBD story. What made you choose gastroenterology and IBD in particular? My grandfather, Grandpa Phil, he had colon cancer and he died of colon cancer when I was in college. Uh, I was the first grandparent that I lost and it was a very powerful experience for me. This was in the late 80s or early 80s, mid 80s. And it was in, in the days when colonoscopy was just getting started as a tool, let alone thought of as a potential screening tool, but it wasn't one that was being used. So I actually had an interest initially in understanding that aspect of what we do. My dad's a veterinarian, uh, and I did not consider being a veterinarian, but I had some perception of what I enjoyed, which was the surgical approach to medicine because of what my father did and enjoyed as well. And so when I went to medical school, I thought I was going to be a surgeon and I thought I would do something related to colon cancer. And I didn't really know everything. But as a first year medical student, my grandmother, so Grandpa Phil's wife, Grandma Pearl, said to me, go see if my doctor's still at the University of Chicago. Actually, she called it Chicago University. That's how she referred to it. And maybe that's what it was called in the earliest days. And I said, well, who is your doctor? And she said, Dr. Kirzner. And I said, oh. And she said, but he was old when he took care of me, so he's probably not alive any longer. But go see if he's around. And if he is, tell him I said hello and thank you for saving my life. And I said, but grandma, what did he save your life from? And she said, I have Crohn's disease. And I said, oh, what is that? I had no idea. So as a first-year medical student, I looked up this Dr. Kirzner. And sure enough, of course, he was still alive. And I went to his office on the second floor of the uh, old Billings Hospital here and knocked on the door without an appointment. And this older man opened the door himself to a suite of office space like they had in the old academic days. And I said, uh, Dr. Kurzer, my name is David Rubin. I'm a first-year medical student. And my grandmother sent me up to say hello and thank you for saving her life. He said, well, who was your grandmother? And I said, her name was Pearl Rubin. And he said, come in, I remember her. And little did I know that Dr. Kirzner remembered all his patients. So this wasn't particularly unique, but it was very moving to a naive first-year medical student. And he brought me back into his office and I'll paint the picture for you, one of these old academic offices with floor to ceiling bookshelves and certificates and awards and plaques on the walls uh, from literally from the floor to the ceiling that run out, had run out of room and file cabinets and a big wooden desk and a large red soft chair across from the desk. And he said, sit down, sat in this little chair, this big chair, which I felt was bigger than I was in many ways. And he walked across his office and opened up one of the long file drawers, one of these horizontal file drawers, and then rifled through it and pulled out a copy of a paper and said, your grandmother's in this study. So Grandma Pearl was in one of the early studies of steroids to treat Crohn's disease in the 1950s. And I was, I didn't know what Crohn's disease was. I didn't know anything about clinical research or academic medicine in that regard at all. And I got home that night and I called my dad. I said, I met Dr. Kirzner and he said he remembered grandma. And my dad said, everyone remembers your grandmother. She never let anyone forget who she was. And so that was 
the first part of this. I didn't immediately then say, okay, right turn, I'm going into IBD. That actually isn't what happened. But Kersner kept his eye on me and every once in a while I'd get home from a long day and there'd be a message on my answering machine, free cell phones, okay? I'm not that old, but yes, that's what I had in medical school. And it would be, I'd be summoned back to his office the next day. So I would go at the appointed time and we would talk some more. My father said to me, go ask him if he knows that cats get ulcerative colitis. Did you guys know that? Yes, I see not. So cats get ulcerative colitis. So I went back and I told Dr. Kersner, my dad's a veterinarian, and he told me to ask you about cats. And he said, oh, I didn't know this. He said, let me tell you about the cotton top tamarind, which is a primate that has uh, something that looks like Crohn's, and the mouse model of colitis and the rat model of colitis. And so he started talking to me about animal models. And I still was so naive. I didn't know what he was talking about at all. But we had a couple of conversations like this through the years. And fast forward to becoming a medical resident at the University of Chicago. I stayed there and then a GI fellow and having still an interest more in colon cancer, to be very honest with you. But as I was rounding in the hospital as a fellow and talking to Steve Hanauer, who was my other mentor, as Kersner became my first, and Steve was certainly a very important second, I said, I want to study colon cancer. And he said, well, this is, uh, let's see, 1997. He said, you know, we don't really have much uh, anyone doing research on clinical colon cancer, but we do study colon cancer in colitis. Maybe you want to study that. So now my two interests merged. I took my interest in colon cancer because of Grandpa Phil, and I took my interest in inflammatory bowel disease because of Grandma Pearl, and I was going to study cancer in IBD. And that's where some of my research started, and that's where some of my early work, which led led to studying inflammation and understanding how we measure inflammation and then how we control it and how we look at it from a biopsy point of view and how we make things better and prevent cancers in people and obviously focus on improving quality of life by treating IBD more effectively. And so what I always tell people when I'm advising my fellows about their careers is, you know, be open-minded to where your career is going to take you. Follow the current of your career. Don't paddle upstream. And it's going to take you down to where you should be if you're paying attention. Um, there's many, many, many more stories about Kersner that could be an entire podcast series, I would tell you. But as it happens, he was 81 when I met him. He took care of my grandmother in the 1950s, so you can do the math. He lived to be 102. So I actually knew him for 20 years. And actually, as, as he aged. Um, he saw patients until he was 95. And on his 95th birthday, he had predetermined that he was going to stop seeing patients. Still came to work every day until he was 100. And he still worked until he died. He was working from home and doing less. But I became, I took over some of his patients. Most of them didn't have IBD at this point, the types of people he was still taking care of. And then I became his doctor and I took care of him at the end of his life and put him in hospice. And so um, here was the guy who took care of my grandmother and maybe saved her life, although she was a little melodramatic. And then I became his doctor and helped this legend at the end of his life and then worked hard to preserve his legacy, which was so meaningful in so many ways. Because what he said was, you want to remember that for any research project or any effort that you have, it should always come back to the patient who's suffering, the person living with a disease or a condition that you want to improve. That came from him, and that's obviously the way we should all be thinking. So it's quite a story. I'm now the Joseph Kersner Professor 
that was uh, from grateful donors. They created a professorship and I became the second person to hold that professorship. The first was Steve Hanauer. And then when he moved on from the University of Chicago, I became the Joseph Kirzner professor. So it's quite a story, huh? He was at my wedding. He knew my wife. My wife worked for him temporarily. She's a preschool teacher, but she worked for him as his secretary part-time. And she said that being a secretary for a hundred-year-old man is kind of like being a preschool teacher. <laughs> yeah. So that's my story. Oh, that is a lovely story. And you have Robin and I both crying. Yes. Was not expecting to cry for nope. that reason, Dr. Rubin, this morning. No. Nope. Well, the second chapter of the story is then my my wife's sister's daughter, my niece on that side of the family with no family history, uh, was diagnosed with Crohn's when she was 16. And my sister's son, my nephew on my side of the family, uh, was diagnosed with Crohn's when he was 16. Oh, wow. I have a niece and a nephew on both sides of the family who had pretty severe Crohn's. So this is personal for me as much as it's professional. And I think there's lots of people in our field who have similar stories. Mm -hmm. And I, I share that willingly with people. But I also acknowledge that uh, an individual story or a personal connection to the disease is a personal connection to the disease. It doesn't always translate into how someone else might interpret or live with this condition. So I recognize that. Cats don't get J pouches. They do have colectomies. <laughs> they get ileal anal connections. They So my dad would do a, a, remove the colon and he'd connect the distal ileum to the huh. canal. And somehow the cats function just fine, he says. Interesting. Well, the only reason I would know that cats have IBD is my dog had IBD. He was diagnosed with IBD Dogs later. IBD too, yeah. And they actually do FMT for some dogs as well. So I was it's like, private. this is wild. <laughs> the veterinarian that was that diagnosed him and was working with us, she was like, I don't know if you know this thing called ulcerative colitis. I'm like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> and then I'm sending her papers being like, hey, so like, what about this? What about that? And the medication that they put him on initially was one that they use, we use in humans. So yeah, they, they do mesalamine and sulfasalazine and those agents as well. You know, that's the amino salicylates. Those are the, or some of the earliest drugs that we've discovered that had some benefits. Although, as you may have heard or know, sulfasalazine was originally developed by a brilliant woman named Nana Svartz, uh, who was developing it to treat rheumatism, to treat joint problems. And they subsequently identified that it could help the colon. And they mistakenly believed it was because it was antibacterial. And they later separated it out and realized that the mesalamine, the 5-ASA component, which is the extract from willow tree bark, was actually anti-inflammatory. So when people talk about being on uh, natural treatments or looking for the alternative to modern medicine, which I appreciate and am sympathetic to, you have to remember that most of our medicines come from nature. It's just a matter of understanding how it works in our bodies. Yeah, I do think sometimes explaining the science, like I got into a conversation with somebody on the airplane on the way home last night, whenever I was on an airplane recently, and she is also a doctor of veterinary science and she was talking and she works for the... You know, there's a lot of veterinarians who work for the FDA. That's who she works with. I, I was guessing that because they, you know, it's not just drugs, it's food. And veterinarians are very much involved in our food uh, supply and livestock health. Yeah. Well, and so she, and we were talking about genetically modified and, you know, people being afraid of GMOs. And, and she's like, yeah, there's nothing that we consume now that isn't genetically modified. We genetically modify stuff all the time, you know, even if it was just crossbreeding plants into different plants. And so, you know, sometimes explaining the science is important for people to understand better, you know, how we treat disease or how we grow food or, you know, whatever it is. So I, well, I do think that's important. I don't want to fast forward us too much, but I will say as a either foreshadowing or I'll say it now, period. <laughs> 
which is that it's not GMO that we need to think about. It's the way food is preserved and prepared and stored. And I think that the ingredients in the food and the processed and ultra processed foods is probably the explanation for a lot of changes in the epidemiology of immune diseases generally, let alone IBD specifically. And I am turning part of my career efforts now to trying to engage the food industry in meaningful research and work and what we're doing. So that's a big task, but it's something that I think is overdue. And there are some really brilliant food scientists clearly in that industry who have not been at the table or been participating in the conversations we have, and they need to be. So I'm working on that now. That's super exciting. Is there a specific aspect that you've identified you think is most likely the culprit? Is it like emulsifiers? What is there anything specific? Well, first, we should just acknowledge for the listeners that IBD really is a collection of diseases. So we don't want to necessarily try to explain everything with one part. But there clearly is a part of IBD that we believe is driven by possibly emulsifiers, breaking down the mucus lining and exposing the gut immune system to more food antigens and triggering an inflammatory condition. It doesn't explain everything, however. So even though we would acknowledge that exposure to processed or ultra-processed foods is associated with a higher risk of developing IBD, the causality there is still somewhat confusing. And there's some good work going on that will hopefully shed more light on this. But the reality is that exposure of the gut immune system to more food antigens or other things that are in our fecal stream doesn't necessarily explain the chronic nature of IBD. You have to also acknowledge that it's not just that it triggers an inflammatory response, it's that it continues. And that's what drives the complications of inflammatory bowel disease is chronic inflammation that leads to progression or other problems. And that's a really important message. And one of the themes of what I've been trying to educate people about, my patients specifically, is understanding the consequence of living with chronic inflammation. So it's no longer okay or sufficient to just manage symptoms or just be feeling better. Of course, that's the first and most important thing we want for everybody. But we have to get to the level of understanding how we're modifying the disease process in order to reduce and prevent the downstream outcomes of chronic inflammation. So when you talk about emulsifiers as a culprit or other things that may be in the food stream or the food sources, we have to understand not just what it might do to trigger inflammation, but why does it then continue? That chronic nature of IBD is one of the questions, it's one of the big questions that we want to understand more about and that we're working to stem. One of the things people misunderstand about maintenance therapy for IBD, for example, why do people with inflammatory bowel disease often need therapy to preserve or prevent relapse is because it's a chronic condition that will that tends to come back. But you can reduce the likelihood of that substantially if you know that you've controlled the disease process at the level objectively of deep control. In other words, feeling better and then knowing that the disease process, the inflammatory process has been shut off is associated with a much lower likelihood of recurrence and progression and all the things we want to avoid. And so I think it's a really important message for people. Maintenance therapy 
being on medicine chronically for this condition that is a chronic condition is not about treating active disease chronically, nor should it be about treating a disease when it flares intermittently. Maintenance therapy, ideally in a chronic condition, any chronic condition, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, maintenance therapy is supposed to be about prevention, prevention of relapse, prevention of progression, prevention of complications. And complications of IBD are not just bowel-related because some people say, well, I work from home or I'm able to manage because I, I just go to the bathroom four or five times in the morning and then I don't eat during the day. That's all part of how people manage living with active disease. But that doesn't get around the fact that we've come to appreciate the consequences of chronic inflammation on sleep, on metabolism, on heart health, maybe on, on neurologic health, as you probably know a little bit about, and degenerative neurologic conditions associated with chronic inflammation, on mood. One of the major areas of emphasis and research in my lab now is looking at the biological basis for mood disorders in IBD. So there's so many things that we've come to appreciate and understand. And I think one of the main messages and services your podcast can do is to make sure people understand a bit more that it's not just about feeling good, which is directly related to having a good quality of life. It gets to the next level, which is disease management, so that it lasts. I want to bring us back just to highlight one thing that you said right at the beginning, because I don't want to miss that, is that you said it is a collection of diseases. And while one thing that we're looking at, like you said, emulsifiers may affect a group of us, it's not going to be the thing that is what is affecting all of us. And so I just wanted to highlight that for everyone who's listening. I didn't want us to miss that. It is a collection of diseases and it's not the same thing for all of us. There's a lot of, for lack of a better term, influencers on social media that are touting cures, that are touting, you know, eat this, do this, have this restrictive diet, buy my supplements, all of this stuff. I cured myself. And I just want to caution everyone out there that, you know, work with your medical team. I'm just going to tell you from my personal experience, I have lived with IBD for over 20 years, and I can guarantee you that if a supplement or a restrictive diet or whatever this person is selling would work for everyone, we would all be doing it. If whatever they had out there would cure me, I can promise you we every single one of us, the millions of us, we would all be doing it and everyone would be cured. So just make sure that you understand that it is a collection of diseases and not everything is going to work for everyone. And so just be cautious, work with your medical team and talk to your doctor about anything that you're interested in trying. And if you're prescribed medicine, don't stop taking your medicine. Just talk to your doctor about what you want to do, what you want to talk about. If you have questions about research, talk to your medical team. Robin, that's Thank such you, a message. I really appreciate it. When I give lectures to patients or when I talk with patients, one of the main things that I say to them is, and I literally have a slide where this is the only words on the slide, your IBD is your IBD. In other words, you should know what you have. You should know what you have and how it's different than what somebody else has. You should know that the person online who has found a dietary strategy that is working for them or that they think is working for them may not even have the same IBD you have in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes they don't even have IBD. They have an irritable bowel, and you all know, and I'm sorry that it's a trigger because <laughs> it triggers me, um, that that's not what we talk about here. 
But I think everyone should know what, what do you have? And the label Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis isn't even really what I mean. Which part of your bowel is inflamed? What are the complications you may have suffered from because of this disease, even before you were diagnosed? What therapies have worked or not worked? And by worked or not worked in my world as a medical professional, I mean, did you actually achieve stable, sustained remission where you were doing great with that treatment, where we knew objectively was working? And you may not know the answer to that, but those are the types of questions that you should be asking and you should find out the answers to. What are your extraintestinal manifestations? Most commonly, people can have joint pain with their disease, but not everyone does, of course. Some people have eye inflammation with their IBD and they don't even know those things are related, but every once in a while their eye will be red. Some people have mouth sores, which sometimes are counted as an extraintestinal manifestation. To me, it's an extension of the bowel, so I don't always think of it that way. But you should know what you have. One of the challenges I've struggled with is that when people go online to read about IBD, as you all know, uh, and I'm sure many listening know, you read, here's what Crohn's is. It can affect any part of your GI tract. And here's a list of medicines from A to Z that you can be on with this disease. And there's no distinction. And it doesn't help someone who is just diagnosed with two inches of ileal inflammation, who's going to probably have a benign course or maybe require a single resection ever in their life from somebody who has a diagnosis when they're four years old with panenteropathy, meaning the whole bowel is inflamed. Very different diseases, obviously. But the problem is if you go online and read about Crohn's because someone just told you you have it after they finished your colonoscopy and you're in a post-sedation haze, you're going to read about, oh, tomorrow it's going to be in your stomach. And the day after that, you're going to have an abscess and you're going to have multiple surgeries. That is not true. And that is not true for the vast majority of people who have this. And you need to understand what you have and know what it does and understand what it can and cannot do. So I really think that's a really powerful message that needs to be disseminated. And I'll tell you that professionally, what we're trying to do is, first of all, there has been the emergence of a much greater understanding of what's now termed very early onset IBD, which is people diagnosed with IBD, usually we say under age four. So that's a very specific type. And what are often associated with monogenic types of IBD, that means a single gene has been identified related to those specific problems, very different than the IBD of the teenager or young adult that we often diagnose. And sometimes the teenager has had it since they were four. It was just in a different form and people weren't diagnosing it properly, unfortunately. And we're reclassifying the IBDs. So I'm happy to share with this audience and all of you that the International Organization for the Study of IBD, an organization that I'm proud to be part of, is reclassifying the IBDs to try to move the field forward, to acknowledge exactly what I said, that the terms Crohn's and colitis, which are ulcerative colitis, which are still being used by the FDA and therefore pharma, and therefore are relegating us to these ongoing descriptors, are not precise enough to explain variations in response to therapies, to explain variations in response to a variety of different other strategies, and it hasn't enabled us to move the science forward in as much of a meaningful way. 
So we're hopeful that we're going to do what oncology did many years ago, which is to have classification systems that will enable more thoughtful approaches to interventions and moving the field forward. I will also say that people have said, well, in cancer, they had discovered that hormones trigger some types of cancers and um, there are all these molecular types. And the answer is, yeah, but they did the reclassification before they knew some of these things. And so I think it's a necessary step forward for us. And I'm happy to share with you that that is underway. And I think that will move the field. Gosh, I have so many questions for you now. Like I'm going to back us up to talking about food and you're working with like sort of food manufacturers to try to figure out some of these things as part of that. Also, you know, again, I'm a social worker, so I'm going to qualify this by saying, you know, part of that process too is food insecurity and food access. And so I do think it's something to, as you're layering this in to treatment with folks is that understanding that there are people that do not have the same access to foods that are not preserved as some of us that perhaps live in, you know, the fancier part of St. Paul. Yeah, well, so we're very aware of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work at the University of Chicago, which is situated yeah. on the lakefront on the south side of Chicago. I live in this neighborhood where we raised our family. And I will add that we, just to the west of us and further south, are areas of what we now call food swamps. Not food deserts, but food swamps. And what that refers to is the access to predominantly processed and ultra-processed and fast foods and not healthy alternatives. And part of the mission of the University of Chicago when it was established in the 1890s was to improve society and to serve the world, but to start in the community. And in the GI division that I run here, we have modified our missions. Our missions, the traditional academic missions are clinical care, research, and education. And from the beginning, I've been doing this now 10 years in this particular role, we added a mission of community engagement to to just call it out. You could easily say, oh, well, it falls under clinical care and maybe some research. But actually, we are very much invested in trying to understand this. And And not surprisingly, there hasn't been enough research in the urban populations that are that don't have access to things to know even how much IBD there is. We certainly know it exists and we want to study it. But one of my wonderful colleagues, Dr. Ed McDonald, is also a trained chef and he does cooking classes and diet education on the South Side. And in addition to doing that and measuring health and weight loss and things that go with these, we're also studying the microbiome. And you wouldn't be surprised, and you may have had other guests talk about it, but the organisms that live in your bowel change rapidly when you change your diet. They don't necessarily stay that way unless you are continuing the diet. And that's one clue as to why dietary interventions are not sustainable strategies for Crohn's disease and haven't really done much in the ulcerative colitis world. But it's of great interest to understand this further and to not just identify those disparities when we start working on this, but also to very much understand what it does to the body physiologically and pathologically. So those are things that we're trying to work on. I'm not going to stop saying I love this, but I, I love this. I love that you're being so holistic in your thinking and trying to serve the patient in all these different ways. I'm going to keep some research for a little while longer. One of the things I said before we hit record was that I really wanted to ask you, you guys are being so innovative at the University of Chicago. You're looking at this in so many different ways. What do you think is beyond that? What's what's on the horizon for even the next phase of research for inflammatory bowel disease? The future of IBD is very, very bright. I think people need to understand, though, that there's not a single cure that's around the corner. And I I know that's been said. I want to make sure it's heard. 
that it's going to be multiple approaches to understanding all of this. And it's not by accident, of course, that most of our effective therapies are aimed at the immune system. It's like the old quote that's maybe misattributed to Willie Sutton, who was an American bank robber. Somebody asked him, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's because it's where the money is. And why do we give immune therapies to try to treat IBD? And it's because the immune system is overactive and we're targeting what we see and what's causing the damage. That doesn't mean that that's going to be the answer. You know, obviously coming at it from a different direction to understand what's driving that overactive immune system is something that we're working very hard to figure out. But very practically speaking, for those in the, in the audience who want to know what's around the corner, what I think is going to be an absolute paradigm shift in IBD is going to be effective um, chronic monitoring of the condition. In other words, being able to know whether you're inflamed or not before you have problems, before you have symptoms, before you lose response to a treatment in order to intervene in meaningful ways to get you back on track and to prevent problems. We've done this. If you look across the field of IBD, and I've been doing this now long enough that I can say I I see it. We certainly have moved the needle. But what I think is going to change everything is if we empower patients with the ability to monitor their condition at home, to do it passively. That means you don't have to do anything. It's not like at opening an app on your phone and telling it how many bowel movements you had. That's old school and that really is not very effective. It's going to be about understanding physiology and using those parameters to know whether or not you're flaring. So what does that mean? Well, we know that people with inflammation, even when they don't feel it, have disrupted sleep. We just finished some research that shows that you don't have as much REM sleep when you're inflamed. REM sleep is the sleep phase where you get restoration of your health. It's where you dream. And for years now, I've been fascinated by sleep and inflammation. Just to, as a footnote, REM sleep was described and discovered at the University of Chicago. The person who described that passed away a couple of years ago, but it's a very interesting observation. And sometimes I ask patients all the time, how are you sleeping? And it's not the obvious, like, oh, I wake up because I have to have a bowel movement. It's sometimes they say, I fall asleep easily, I sleep for eight hours, but I'm always tired. That's a ubiquitous problem, fatigue. Well, the next question is, do you remember your dreams? If you're not remembering dreams or you're not having dreams, you may be because you're not getting to that level of restorative sleep, which gets to the biology of sleep, which we'll, I'll mention in a second. But the second thing that, that comes up is that after we put people into remission, I've had patients spontaneously offer without me asking or mentioning it that they now are having dreams like they're sleeping more restfully. So my point of this is one thing to measure that's going to be a monitoring strategy might be sleep patterns that gives you meaningful information. The other one that we've shown uh, in early data has been heart rate regularity. So there's some very subtle irregularities in your heart rate that go along with stress and go along with inflammation. And even the obvious things, which is your heart, your resting heart rate is a little higher when you're inflamed because you're hypermetabolic. So we've measured that. We looked at physical activity and it's measured by steps with a Fitbit device. And now we're doing advanced studies with other biosensor devices and wearables. And we've been able to put these all together into algorithms that start to predict when you're relapsing. So my vision for this is something in the background that you don't have to worry about or do anything for will tell you 
it looks like you might be having a flare and trigger you to do something more objective. So we're working on home tests that would be objective measures of inflammation. In Europe and other parts of the world, they have home stool calprotectin markers. That's the protein that that measures inflammation. In the U.S., they're waiting for it to get through the FDA, but it's going to have some restrictions that won't make it as useful, unfortunately. But we're working on newer versions of those things. And we're also working on urine tests and other ways that you can potentially objectively measure that your body is inflamed in a way that will confirm what your device picked up in the background and then remind you very basically, are you taking care of yourself? Are you taking your maintenance therapy? Because we know people who feel well start to miss those things and tell you when it might be time to notify your healthcare team. So we're trying to build this all in the background. So I think that's going to be a game changer. Because I know that all we see is the tip of the iceberg in the clinic, and it's often the person who's already symptomatic, and what's going on in the 99.99% of the time you're not in the medical setting is the most important time to understand how a chronic condition is affecting you. So that's the first and most proximate thing that I think is going to change people's lives. The second one is that there are some treatments in development that finally may have what we call companion diagnostics, which are predictive therapeutic biomarkers. That means that you can do a test before you choose a therapy to know whether this one might work for you. And that would be obviously extraordinarily important. So instead of doing what I call spinning the roulette wheel to pick the medicine you're going to get, or waiting for the insurance company to tell us what we can or cannot use, which could be a whole other diatribe I can go on, I would say to you that having informative therapeutic biomarkers will be a game changer. And it's not that far off. There are some studies that are in phase three now that have some prediction. They're not perfect, but they don't need to be perfect. I keep reminding people. All we need is like a clue to push us in the right direction. You know, I'll take a 10% benefit over guessing any day. I see you both nodding. So I I know we're on Zoom and this is a podcast, but I'm just going to say that I know you agree with me. And I think that that's the other major thing. I could go on and on and on, but those are two big ones for you. Yes, we are very vigorously nodding at that because I do think the more ammunition, the more tools that we can provide to you as a patient and you as a provider to really try to get you to the at least the best possible medication is super important. Only because we already know that only a certain percentage of medications work for patients. And once you have to switch, the likelihood of that second medication working, the percentage goes down. I mean, you know, like just it would be much better for the first medication to work. And and having that push, like you said, even a 10% bump increases our chances as a patient of that first medication working I, again, vigorously shaking my head, yes. Any chance for the first medication working, I'm, I'm for. Well, the one, thing, the one thing we've definitely learned as well is that knowing why you're losing response to a medicine is very important. It's not just that, oh gosh, this one stopped working now too. It really does matter to understand a little bit more about why it might have happened. Did it never really get you into the deep remission and disease control that we thought it was? It only did what we call a response, meaning you're feeling better, but you never really got there. So it was just a matter of time where the disease was going to push through. That's important to know and understand. That's why objective measures 
are going to be so important and why we're incorporating intestinal ultrasound now in our clinics, which is another topic we could talk about, but other ways to know that your disease got to where it needed to go. The second thing is understanding pharmacodynamics a little bit, and I don't want to make this into a pharmacology lecture, but I do want to explain that biological therapies, which means the protein-based treatments that are made by living cells, that's what a biologic is, it's nothing magic or more toxic or scary, proteins in people with inflamed bowel leak. So an inflamed gut, they knew this back in Kersner's time, there's some really interesting papers that when your bowel is very inflamed, you leak proteins. And proteins are all the things that are in our body that do what we need them to do. But if you're giving a protein-based therapy, which is all of our biological treatments. So the audience knows Remicade, Inflectra, Humira, Antivio, Stellara, Skyrizi. The newest one is Omvo, um, which is another IL-23 drug. But the point is they're all proteins. So when you give these drugs as an injection or an infusion, again, because they're proteins, they're too big to get absorbed. That's why they're not oral. It's nothing about them being dangerous. It's about just getting them into the body. If you're leaking protein out of an inflamed bowel, the drug ends up going into the toilet. I say it's like filling a bathtub when the drain is open. You can't quite get enough in to do its job. So another reason people lose response or don't respond to a therapy isn't because this mechanism is exhausted by your body's biology. It's because you just don't get enough drug in to do what we need it to do. And so that's a different consideration. And that's why the advent of these newer oral therapies, which are called synthetic targeted small molecules, the oral treatments, which I've termed the third revolution in treating IBD, have been a major change because we, we avoid the protein loss problem. You know exactly how much drug you're getting, you know exactly how much gets into your body, and then you know whether this medicine's working or not in a very real way. And you're not worried that it's just because you can't dose it properly big difference. And so as you can understand, because it's complicated in some ways, this is also something that hasn't necessarily percolated down to all of my colleagues, my hardworking, excellent, thoughtful colleagues who are taking care of patients with IBD. There's been a proliferation of medicines and information that's hard to keep up with. So I get it. That's part of the problem. So knowing that did you not respond ever to this medicine in any way versus you had a response but didn't get into deep remission, so you lost response because the disease just progressed through it? Or is it just a delivery issue? And is that what's happening, that the medicine might work perfectly, but we can't get enough in with the particular phase of the illness you're in and we need some other strategy to heal your bowel? Then we can go back to that uh, approach. So that's a whole new way to approach this uh, and to understand why therapies work or don't work or lose response. But it's a huge one because I know that one of the fears patients have is this medicine's only going to work for a little while and then I'm going to be back to the first part of this all over again where I'm sick and trying to figure out what should I use and how do I learn about this new medicine and the side effects and will it work for me and how long will it take and when will I know? Uncertainty is is the biggest problem we face. When you can tell somebody you're in deep remission with this medicine, your bowel is healed, your inflammatory markers have normalized, you have also told them that in the next year, it is highly, highly unlikely you're going to lose response to this medicine. And that enables people to plan, to live, 
to be. And that's the best gift you can give someone. So it's the holiday season, right? The best gift that your healthcare team can give you is to tell you that you're in deep remission. I mean, people spontaneously start crying when you explain this to them and tell them that they've achieved that goal. And if those who are listening don't know if you're in deep remission, add that to your list of questions so that in the new year, you can find out. I would add to that when you are slightly better than you were before, you automatically are like, I'm better because any amount of improvement is just so welcome. So understanding that going from 40% to 80% is not better. And then also from my personal experience, I would say that I'm in remission. Like if you go in and have a scope and they take biopsies, I'm in remission. There's no sign of inflammation, but sometimes I experience symptoms, but I'm not changing my meds because I have no inflammation, right? I'm not, I'm not changing my meds. I am in remission. So, but what am I doing about the symptoms, right? How am I addressing symptoms that I'm having? That's different. So that's a conversation that I have to have with my doctor because I want to say, Hey, I'm not changing my meds because I am in remission, but what do we do about these other things that I'm still experiencing? So we have to have these hard conversations. We have to write down these questions when we go in to talk to our doctors, just like Dr. Rubin just said, like, if I'm not in deep remission, how do we get there? Don't just accept going from 40% to 80%. While it is welcome to have that much improvement, there is hope we can get to even better than that. And gosh, I mean, everything that you just said, I could cry that these conversations are going to matriculate down to all of your colleagues. There's just so much information that is, it's working its way down there. They are going to find out all of this information that he is sharing with us now as patients. I think we spend a lot of time on PubMed. I think we spend a lot of time gathering this information for ourselves, but sometimes we get so caught up on just feeling slightly better that we're like, oh, I'm better. I don't have to ask any more questions. We've done our job. So still ask questions, still ask if this is the best I can expect. Still, if you're not in deep remission, that's the goal. You've said this multiple times, Robin, when like when the baseline is terrible, anything is better than terrible. Yeah. So like you just sort of set your baseline different, I feel like. So yeah, you've said that multiple times and it's true. Here's my shtick on remission. First of all, people who live with inflammatory bowel disease should know what it is, just the basics. And I'll tell you what I think it should be. And they should know that they should expect it. And I think that too often people have learned helplessness or don't know that they can achieve it because they read online or they hear from others how awful the diseases are and this is what you should expect to have and live with and I'm so sorry, this is a terrible, awful condition. I reject that, okay, upfront. Now, the first thing is I've tried to redefine remission and I do this all the time when I see a, a patient for the very first time and sometimes I return to it when I'm seeing people in, as returns. Symptomatic remission means that you are returned to a state of good health, which means no pain, no diarrhea, regular bowels. When you need to go, you can tell and you don't have to rush and you're feeling well from a GI point of view. Deep remission, as Robin very nicely mentioned, is that in addition to symptomatic remission, you have objective measures of disease control, endoscopy, blood markers, stool markers. Increasingly, we value in our understanding biopsies, although that's still not an official target for a variety of different reasons we can chat about. But I actually have coined a term functional remission. 
which means that you can have your symptoms be improved and you can have someone tell you that you're not anemic any longer and that your CRP, your blood marker of inflammation is normal. But if you still have joint pain, if you're still depressed, if you're still afraid to go out because you don't know if you're going to make it down the street in your car before you have an accident, if you are unable to have a meaningful and intimate relationship, then you're not in functional remission. If you aren't doing all the things you wanted to do in life or more, you haven't achieved functional remission. So the goal ultimately I have for my patients and what we say is aspirational, because we can't get there in everybody, but we sure can get there to in a lot more people than we used to, is sustained functional remission. In order to do that, you need to know how to use therapies properly, you need to know how to measure the inflammation properly, and you need to pay attention to all the extraintestinal problems and coexisting conditions that go with having an inflammatory bowel condition and address them. And that's a big ask. It's a really big ask for a gastroenterologist who does screening colonoscopies for a living and manages pancreatitis and treats hepatitis C. I get it, but I believe in trickle-up education. And I'll, what I mean by that, with all due respect to the listeners, is I want to empower patients to know that this is possible and to ask questions first, because I think that they'll drive some of this forward and hopefully find the right team to help. And we have wonderful colleagues out there who I know can do this. But the first step is to make sure people know that it's possible and that they should expect it. Raise expectations, raise the bar on health in IBD, because that'll drive the field forward. And I continue to realize that the advances that are occurring and the potential of our existing treatments is not reaching the people who would benefit from them. Uh, I have a colleague who has said that most people with IBD could be in remission if we used our existing treatments at the right time and more effectively. And I agree with that statement. So waiting until you're having a complication before you go on an advanced therapy is the wrong thing to do. Um, I don't want that for anybody. And that's not the bar you should set for yourself. So that's the way I want people to understand these conditions. They should live well and they should have the predictive value of knowing what comes with a healed bowel so that they can plan and be comfortable and know what's going on in their body. That gets back to my message about monitoring strategies, right? Because if you know that, you know, maybe you had some food the night before that didn't agree with you, but you're now thinking it's a flare because you're not sure because you have that type of post-traumatic stress reaction to having GI symptoms, but you measure your inflammatory marker that morning in some way, whether it's passive or, or active, and it tells you you're not inflamed, you go, oh, I have what everyone else in the world gets. I ate something that didn't agree with me. And you go about your day. That's what I want people to have. And that's why I said that's probably the most proximate change that will enable people to manage their disease more effectively and manage their lives better. And manage their anxiety, I think. Yes. Of course. I know this. Yeah. I love, I mean, I really love that. Sometimes you know this too, obviously. It's exhausting. Like being able to manage something the way that you mentioned passively. Gosh, I mean, the relief I feel just hearing you talk about it, because sometimes I'm just, I'm exhausted and I don't have the energy to, to reach out to my doctor. Uh, well, you really to, have to, do, you have to do the driving. What I see you doing is yeah. you have to do a lot of the like, Hey, I think I'm anemic. I need to get this blood test. Hey, you I know, do. and not putting fault on your doctor, but right no. now you are, because you don't have that to fall back on, you're really having to push I do. to get these other things really monitored to help you manage 
That's exhausting. It is. We've shown that people who are in remission, uh, who have had urgency as one of their symptoms, rectal urgency or bowel urgency, will continue to experience urgency even when you demonstrate that the rectum is healed, there's no inflammation. And that's because when somebody has lived with urgency or had an incontinent episode, even just one, the thought that it might happen again has essentially set them up to be triggered by every time they feel like they might need to go to the bathroom. They're not sure what's going to happen. And the reason I'm saying that is because we've also shown that the experience of urgency, even when you're in remission, is directly related to fatigue. So Robin, to get to your point about being exhausted, like just thinking about what am I going to need to do? How will I manage getting from point A to point B? And when I get there, what will I be able to partake in and, and where will the bathroom be? And all of those things absolutely consume your brain and your energies. And so when you can know for a fact that you're not inflamed, that this is under control and, and what your body is likely to be doing statistically based on what we now know about your particular state of control, it relieves that pressure and frees up your brain and your mind and your life and your emotions and your ability to be with other people and to be achieving the things in your life you need to do. It, it absolutely is essential. And uh, I'm sorry to know that this doesn't happen more often, but I definitely know it's the case. I'll also just add one more thing because it's. I was in clinic yesterday morning and I saw a lovely young woman with colitis that we've been working together to manage. And she comes with her parents from far away for her visits. It uh, has the same effect on parents and caregivers and people who live with you and who care about you. And, you know, I spent as much time or more talking to her mother yesterday because the mom was distraught over, I don't know when my daughter is going to have her next flare and how I can't live through this again. And what are we going to do? And there were a couple messages. One message was, I want to make it clear to you that the reason that happened is because she hadn't been, she hadn't gotten into the deep remission where we've been working on, which she is now in. So we can tell you with some degree of certainty that this is not likely to happen. So you have that to know. The second thing is you also need to get support and help as a care provider. And it's an area we haven't spent as much time on, but I think it's very, very important. And everyone who's listening who has a care provider or who is one, I think knows this and recognizes it, but we should all turn to that person or to those people and make sure they know how much they're valued and make sure they're taking care of themselves. I told mom that I thought she would benefit from talking to a professional, a therapist um, and helping work through this. And so that she didn't have this type of reaction. So there's that whole aspect of it too. So it goes beyond the individual who's exhausted by all this to the people who love and care for them who feel that way too. Yeah. As the family member of somebody who had a chronic illness, not inflammatory bowel disease, but yes, that underlying current of uncertainty was just always there. That anxiety was always there. I'm going to turn us away a little bit because Robin is crying and I'm going to cry. Oh, I'm so David sorry. Rubin, what, have you, what are you doing to us? That was not my intention today. I hope it <laughs> well, of relief or tears of no, it's, hope. I, think, I don't know. It Absolutely. I think there is definitely tears of hope on both sides. But also, I'm really glad you highlighted the mental health component of things. Like that dealing with the anxiety in general is going to be, for everybody in the family, is going to be helpful to the overall health of somebody as well. So, And you have built such a great team that really has all of these different pieces of living with a chronic illness. Is that something that was sort of already started when you entered into the IPD field? Or is this something that you've very deliberately built? Because 
in addition to having mental health and, and dietitian and all these things, you also have Dr. Choi, who we had on the show, who adds a whole different component to your team and, and is able to help manage somebody's care really differently. So tell me about building your team. Well, the first point is, uh, no, this didn't exist before. And the recognition that doing what we, what I really feel we are compelled to do for the field required the right team. And I'm blessed with an incredible team around me, not just the people that you've mentioned or referred to, but also my colleagues who specialize in IBD who work with me. And I'm also fortunate to have grateful patients who support some of the work we do, which enables us to do more in some ways, and an institution that values multidisciplinary approaches to complex diseases. And those things all add up in a meaningful way. From the mental health point of view, I'm going to tell you a little bit of historical relevance. I've been a faculty member at the university and I finished my training in 2001, so enough years now that when I look back on the history of the field, um, I can interpret it in a way to help us move forward. And the mental health aspects of IBD have a very dark history. As some listening will know, or maybe even are still told, that it was thought for a while that it was an individual's personality that gave them IBD. There was something called the anxious personality type that caused IBD. That's what they thought. And there was an entire era of IBD management. And again, in a time when they didn't understand the disease or how to treat it more effectively, where the treatment for IBD was group therapy, was psychotherapy, was intensive interventions by well-meaning but misdirected psychologists and psychiatrists. And uh, when Kersner died, he left his books to me and I donated them back to the section of GI and uh, we have a library of all of his books. And one of them was called Psychotherapy and Ulcerative Colitis. It's an entire book written about uh, how to treat ulcerative colitis by engaging in meaningful psychodynamic therapy. And I consider that to be a dark time in the field uh, in many different ways because it essentially put the, the blame on the patient for a condition that clearly wasn't related to that. And I have uh, the records of a patient I took care of who passed away last year, age 85. Um, so he lived a long, healthy life. But from when he was a teenager and he was transferred to the University of Chicago from the Mayo Clinic and he, back in the days when uh, they didn't have good therapies, was in the hospital for three months. And during his three-month hospitalization, he was enrolled in group psychotherapy sessions, as was his mother. And in his medical record was his uh, analysis and the conclusions of the psychiatrists. And so were those of his mother. They were in his chart. It was back in the day when these things could happen that way. They concluded that this young man had ulcerative colitis because his father's mother had moved in with them. In other words, his mother's mother-in-law, and that she had made his mother so anxious that she transferred that anxiety and that energy into her son and gave him colitis. So uh, I think that this is a dark time in the field. We obviously have come to appreciate a lot of other things. We recognize there's a role and there is certainly a relationship in mood and mental health and IBD. But then we moved into the era, and it still exists, and I think it's relevant, where we accepted that it's a reactive type of depression or anxiety. You develop depression and anxiety because you have a chronic condition and you're a young person whose future has been modified by this fact. And it is socially isolating to live with active 
IBD or to be unable to engage in the types of activities that people enjoy. Food is quality of life. There's wonderful work done by Kevin Whalen in the UK. If you haven't had him as a guest yet, I encourage you to invite him, but um, he's done some great work on food as a quality of life and eating. So the reactive model of depression and mood disorders with IBD makes sense. But now we're in an era and the research we're doing, and I'm very proud of our team, is we're trying to figure out the biological basis for this. So there's a lot of different ways to think about this, but I'm going to briefly say to you that what we have and what we believe and what we hypothesize is that the metabolism of some of the amino acids in our food and in our diets is what contribute. We know this is what contributes to neurotransmitters, and we understand that they're metabolized by the bacteria that live in our bowel and other processes. So what we have been studying is whether or not inflammation and when that microbiome is disrupted has an impact on those neurotransmitters, those downstream metabolites of some of the amino acids we eat. We also know from some very nice work done in Italy and elsewhere now that an inflamed bowel actually leads to a leaky blood-brain barrier. So the barrier between what's in your bloodstream and what gets in your central nervous system becomes leaky. So if you add this up, at least what we think may be going on, is you have a disrupted biome that affects the metabolism of different amino acids. The one of great interest is tryptophan because that's metabolized into serotonin and melatonin, among many other things. And then you have a leaky blood-brain barrier. So these disruptions in these massive amounts of neurotransmitters that are um, produced will affect the central nervous system. So that's some of the research we're doing. So now suddenly we may have a biological explanation for mood disorders and mental health problems with IBD, which isn't just of interest from a biology point of view. It's of great interest from a social stigma point of view. Like to say and to understand that you are depressed or anxious because you have IBD, not because it's a personality flaw, you know, some stigma that goes with mental health still these days, even in, with all the progress that's been made. And I reflect on Rosalind Carter and her legacy in this area. But I would say that it, it will suddenly mean make sense to people what mental health professionals have said for a long time, is that this is a condition that can be treated, can be prevented, that has modifiable outcomes. And we should treat it and understand it as such and not as a weakness in a, in a personality or as something that should be ignored or not addressed properly. So the work we're doing now is we're measuring inflammation. We're screening everyone in our clinic, in, in my clinic, uh, for these conditions, finding some really interesting things just by doing that. And um, we have developed a way working with our microbiome institute. We just do a finger stick. It's not a blood draw with a needle. And the little prick on the finger gives us blood spots and we run all the metabolites through the mass spec machines and we can get all these data and more. And we're starting to see signals pop out right away. So getting back to sleep disorders, melatonin is related to your sleep. So we're measuring that and that seems to be disrupted. We're looking at serotonin, which is related to mood. And there's many, many other things. So imagine the possibility that if we treat your inflammation, we actually change the biology of the mental health problem, like as a new adjunctive management strategy, or maybe the primary management strategy for mental health. So that's a really area, important area of research, which I hope will continue to mature. And it's all because I have Dr. Ashley Sidebottom, who's the director of the metabolomic core in the, in the Microbiome Institute. Dr. Elise Bedell, who's an incredible GI psychologist who works with us. Incredible lab group that works with me. So Zach and Evan are in the room with every patient, screening them and, and 
pricking their fingers and collecting the blood samples. And then we have Anton who takes the samples down from clinic downtown to the university. Like it's a whole team, right? And we, I created the IBD psychology interest group, which meets monthly. And we start with what are we doing clinically to address uh, how we do this in, in our clinical practice? What's going on with our translational work to better understand the biology and some of the clinical studies in the microbiome? And that's where we get into some of the things with mice and other areas. University of Chicago has a Mind uh, Body Institute, and they do a lot of really great basic science, and we're now collaborating with them. And what are we doing with our research that I just described to you, and how can we move this whole thing forward? But it's a team, 100% a team, to get back to your first question. And we have other stories like that, where it's a team approach. That's the way to get things done, right? And uh, of course, the most important part of the team is back to the first thing I said today, which is the patient in the center of all of this that drives this. And the reason I still see patients and love what I do with in the clinic is because that's the inspiration for these projects. That's what gives us the meaning behind what we do and directs the work that we're trying to accomplish. That is just so cool. It just seems like the wrong word to use because it feels too simplified. But how amazing must it be to work within an environment that just that relishes innovation in such a way that relishes looking at things in an entirely different way and, and examining things like in such a unique perspective and really rewarding innovation. Ah, oh, that must be so cool. Well, in an era when expertise has been devalued by many in the popular press or in social media, and when scientific progress is often looked at sideways, or for people out there who may be suffering from these conditions and didn't know that there was progress, not just from the pharmaceutical industry, which I will acknowledge has made great progress, but in all these other things, I think it's really important to shine a light on it. And I'm grateful to you both for doing what you're doing and letting us have a voice on these things uh, so that we can talk about it and give people hope and also make sure the right people are listening so they understand that there is value to science and expertise and that there are people trying to challenge the current thinking. When I was a very young trainee, Kersner said to me, don't adhere to dogma. And to be honest with you, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Like it, that was just not in my brain. I didn't understand it. Dogma is what everyone thinks we should do or what everyone's doing. And challenging the status quo and asking what you can do better tomorrow than what you've done today is, I think, a necessary component of anyone who cares about what they're doing in any profession, frankly. But in my group, I constantly say to people, what is it going to take? My job is to try to direct and lead, but to come up with the resources. So when I meet with my faculty who aren't in IBD or other groups within my section at the University of Chicago, I will say to them, like, what would it take for your group studying the pancreas to be the number one group in the world? And they'll say, oh, well, gosh, I didn't think we could do that. I said, well, if you don't think you can, or if you don't even answer the question, you'll never do it. So let's start with the question of what would it take? And then let's figure it out together. I say that all the time in my lab group. I also use the expression, you know, don't forget there's somebody on the other side of this who's going to be diagnosed with IBD tomorrow. So make this work. I don't care what it takes. Go back and come back to me with some results. Robin is now booking her uh, move to Chicago, I think is yes. probably. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it did remind me just based on what you just said, I trust my doctor. And I go to an IBD specialist. And also I sent her a message on the patient portal just the other day. And I said, I think I've been asking you the wrong questions. I said, I think we've been having the wrong conversation. 
I said, I think that we should be talking about something else. I said, I think I need a surgical consult. Like, I think it's okay for us as patients to come back and say, I think I've been looking at this the wrong way. And just because you just, you and you said, what's it going to take? Dogma, status quo, like just because everything's been going along just fine or just because like the question I started asking myself is, can I live like this? Like, is this what I can expect for the rest of my life to be? Is this okay? Is this good enough? These are the questions that I started asking myself. And the answer to myself was no. And so I went back to my doctor and said, I think I'm having, I think I've been having the wrong conversation with you. And so she was open to that, which I expected that she would be. I was not surprised by her response, but I want to say it's okay to have that conversation with your physician. It's okay to go to your physician and say, I want to ask new questions. I'm not okay with where my care is going. So if you need permission from Dr. Rubin, if you need permission from me to have that conversation with your physician, you have it. If the status quo is not okay, it's okay to change it. Well, and Robin, we like you've said in the past too, sometimes it's also the permission to go get a second opinion. On the medical side, one of the challenges that we're facing is uh, an overload of messages and these portals, which on the one hand have empowered a lot of different communication strategies and have made some things more efficient, like getting refills, I think, and other ways of communicating. And on the other hand, have complicated physician-patient relations. For some, it's easier to respond to a message briefly than to actually pick up the phone. And for a patient, certainly it's easier to send a message than to try to get their doctor on the phone. We all know that. And I think that it's absolutely appropriate to schedule an appointment or to figure out a way that you can actually have a conversation. That's true about everything, by the way. When I'm dealing with interpersonal relations among my faculty, I'll get an email from each person on the side to me and then I'll I'll call one of them. I'll say, do you know what I'm doing right now? And they'll say, no. And I said, I'm talking to you on the phone. Do you remember that a phone exists? I'd like you to call this other person and please deal with it instead of emailing, emailing. Now, I just mean that somewhat facetiously. There's sometimes serious things we all manage. But my point is that there's not a substitute for that also. So sometimes we get into, for those who use Epic, the MyChart communications. I coined the term MyChartosis, where the message goes off the screen. That's not meant to be pejorative to the patients. It's meant to mean this is somebody who should have a phone call or a visit. And it takes a lot less time and it's much more effective. So that's yes. true. I have an appointment to discuss oh, it now, but I'm just saying. Robin. I was yeah. just saying that on the medical side, I know my colleagues are working hard to do these yeah. things too. And that, that it's a challenging time. I mean, in the last two months, how many therapies were approved by the FDA? A bunch. Sub-Q and Velcipity, which is atrocimod, the sub-Q infliximab, if people hadn't heard that already, also got approval from the FDA. OMVO, which is mirakizumab, which is the IL-23 drug. All those were approved in the last two months. How can a, anybody, academic, non-academic community, IBD expert, anyone keep up with all this? It's difficult. I'm glad you brought up the whole, like, have a conversation. Cause I think what Robin is saying is great. You know, sometimes you need to go home, you need to process, and then you can ask questions and, and get it out and say, Hey, perhaps we're doing the wrong thing. But I do think sometimes and this, I mean, this happens in every email based communication, you know, firing off a quick response, you don't always know that the person interpreted it the way that you intended it, or, you know, that you're really providing the type of education that they need. So definitely, especially, you know, if you're talking about something real complicated, yeah. Having yeah. a conversation is a good idea. <laughs> 
it's okay to ask for a second opinion or to, to revisit what you've been doing. Right. So you're not repeating the same thing over and over to try to move stuff forward. And I recognize that I have a unique set of resources that help me take great care of patients. Even if I'm the one who helped build all those resources, the truth is I know, you know, one of the things people say to me is, well, in, in my community-based practice, I don't have a gastropsychologist or yeah. I don't have an intestinal ultrasound machine. What do I do? And there are answers to those questions, but I think these are real facts that we have to keep in mind for people. That must be so incredibly frustrating from your side to know how good care can be and know how much these resources can help people care for their patients, but to know that it's not accessible to everybody. You know, like I'm sure if you could ma wave your magic wand and give everybody what they needed, it's, you would, it just, it's, yeah. I think this is what I sometimes worry about with our show as well. Like we bring these people on that talk about, you know, being part of these amazing centers that have ton that have the resources that really can care for patients in a way that is so holistic. And yet our patient that's living in Montana doesn't have access. You know, like it's it's just every once in a while I worry that we're like holding out this like beacon of hope that's real far away for some people. Well, I guess I have two comments. The first okay. one is that the goal of advancing the field is not to make it super specialized and so complicated that you can only get it if you see an expert. That's yeah. wrong. One of the major priorities for me personally in our field is to try to figure out how we can simplify some of these principles. One of the ways we've simplified it, the goals of management is to understand that we should be treating to objective measures of control. So regardless of what treatment you're using, and I wrote a paper about this in 2015, where I said, even if you want to do a diet trial, you should make sure that it's paired with objective measures that your disease is responding and is under control, which is the message we started with earlier. And I think that's really important. So everyone can understand that the goal should be the same. How you get there is where you might have to work on it. And the second thing I'll say is the advent of communication strategies like this to raise awareness and social media, which is something I embraced early as a way to level the playing field and communicate broadly, I think has its benefits. It also has some drawbacks that we could touch on, but the reality is that I think that for the person who's living in a remote part of the country where they don't have the same access, I get it. And there are ways to do some of this remotely and some of this, there are ways to have digital solutions to some of the problems that people face. And sometimes people just need to get in the car and get a second opinion or do something else. But we're working on it. And if we didn't try, then we would never get anywhere. So no. I think we have to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. It's just how do we expand the reach as far as we possibly can to ensure that we're getting as much equity and <laughs> out of it as we can. 100% agree. And the number one request from gastroenterologists and our wonderful nurse colleagues to, to us, to me, has been, can you please simplify this? Like, what <laughs> do I do after I give the first treatment? Or what should that first treatment? So I'm working with Millie Long, who is a wonderful IBD expert and she's ed editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastro. And the two of us are writing two articles on how to approach Crohn's and ulcerative colitis with the idea of simplifying a treatment algorithm, like just getting into the pharma part of it for a second, yeah. just so we can help people say, okay, because that's what the person who doesn't live and breathe IBD wants to know, like, please just give me something that I can do so I'm not um, missing an important point for my patient and I know what treatment to use. 
So we're working on trying that now. And that I think will translate well to patients too. For sure. Dr. Rubin, you mentioned that being part of the international, I think it's IOIBD, is that International Organization of Inflammatory Bowel Disease? Did I get that right? Yeah. So the International Organization for the Study of Inflammatory Bowel Disease. Okay. And that is one of lots of organizations you're involved in. But can you talk a little bit about what you see as part of these international consortiums organizations about how IBD is treated elsewhere? What have you learned? What do you see there? Well, first of all, in the history of IBD, it was originally described and thought and probably was mostly a disease of what was called the Western world. And over the years, it has appeared slash been described in every part of the world, including even some reports coming out of Sub-Sahara Africa now. And the fact that we're now seeing it as a more global disease raises lots of questions and potential for understanding the disease more. And certainly the IBD that's uh, rising quite rapidly now in places like China and Japan and India is not necessarily the same Crohn's ileitis described in the 1930s in the United States, but it's certainly an IBD, and there are some differences and similarities. So we can learn a lot from understanding and accepting that IBD is now a global problem. The next part of this is how do we organize to study it properly and to work together to address it? Because certainly not only is the science interesting, then there's the issue of global access and equity, and it has lots of different aspects to it. For example, it's become harder than ever to recruit people into clinical trials for new therapies. Every drug that a patient's receiving had a clinical trial process and people participated in those trials. But there are now so many therapies available that many patients either don't need to try something new or different or don't want to because they have other options. And the recruitment of our clinical trials has become a global effort. And there's some challenges to that, which means that in the emerging therapies, a lot of patients are being recruited from Eastern Europe and from Asia, and they're not the same patient population as necessarily the person in the United States who has the disease, and there may be a difference in how they respond. So recognizing the importance of calling out the different types of populations that are in these clinical trials is a really uh, essential issue. And that's just global. Then we get back to the United States and we look at our clinical trials. They're predominantly white people that are recruited in these trials, not underrepresented individuals in medicine, uh, people of color or people who are otherwise not having access to good care. So there are lots of issues from that point of view that come up. So what I've described and discussed has been this issue of uh, what I call macro medicine, which is organizing ourselves around societies and clubs and uh, professional groups in order to try to tackle some of these global problems. And the International Organization for the Study of IBD started out as a club. It was a social club for a few select individuals from different parts of the world, mostly Europe and the US. And it has grown into an organization that has members from the Asian world, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, South America, and uh, has developed and described and discussed an approach that's much more organized to try and tackle some of these issues. So earlier I mentioned that it's working on a reclassification scheme for IBD. There's also an effort to better come to terms with the epidemiology of IBD, meaning that 
can we study this in a more meaningful way to know actually what's happening in different parts of the world so we know where to exert our efforts and influence? And how can we learn from one another? So we have an annual meeting every year and we get together and we invite our colleagues from different parts of the world to tell us what they're learning and what they're seeing and to share with us their insights so that we can all work together. So I think that's a very optimistic way to describe that particular group and I'm very proud to be part of it. In 2025, I'll become the chair. So I'm going to help continue to steer it in a professional way to try to address some of these disparities. That's sort of my social justice uh, approach to the world. But the organization didn't start that way. But it is actually a very meaningful group now that's growing and has some of the greatest minds in IBD uh, as part of it. Not There's many others who should be and could be, and it's growing. So hopefully that'll happen too. <laughs> well, that does very well lead me into the next question for you. So Friend of the show and somebody you know as well, Lauren Urbach-Barnfield. When I told her you would be part of the show, she says, number one, he is such a lovely man. You will love him. She is right. But she also, her question to you is when and if you sleep, because you are involved in it seems like absolutely everything and you see patients in addition to all of these other things that you've talked about. So that is Lauren's question to you. <laughs> Hi, Lauren. I do sleep. Uh, I used to think sleep was was optional, but you've already heard me tell you that I think sleep is so important mm -hmm. and it makes me much more uh, effective. So I appreciate the compliment, I think, but it's not the way to do this. I'll tell you that the success of me and anyone who does what I do, I, I truly believe is about the people around you and about being sort of centered on a mission uh, that makes sense. That's my passion. I love my patients. I love what I do for patients and with them. If I stripped away all my other administrative and research responsibilities, I would want to still be a doctor seeing my patients. And that's my plan. So I'm going to continue doing that. Thank you so, so much for being on our show today, Dr. Rubin, and sharing so much of yourself with us and our listeners. Our last question for you, what is the one piece of advice that you would have for the IBD community? And since you are the Dr. David T. Rubin, you can share your advice for patient community and the professional community. Well, I think I'd go back to one of the things I said, which is don't adhere to dogma, which means challenge the status quo and think about how we can do what we're doing better tomorrow. That applies to professionals and patients, frankly. But uh, I would also say to my patient community, please expect more, expect remission, demand access to the types of care that will get you there and know that there are many, many people who are working hard to give you a better life and who want to work with you to do so. I think that's a really important message for you to hear and to know because healthcare has become so complicated to navigate that I want people to leave with this message that there are a lot of people behind the scenes and in front of the scenes who are working to try and find the cures that we need and to understand these complex processes in a meaningful way. And just a note of caution that I, I think you have touched on in a very nice way today, which is be a little skeptical of what you see on Facebook and on social media and the claims that there's a better way forward. Just ask the right questions and then talk to people you trust so you understand whether this is meaningful or not. I think that we all want to be open-minded to a new way to do things, but we also are not keeping any secrets. There's no massive conspiracy from finding the right answers. We are really working and have made incredible progress, but we know there's a lot more to do. 
Beautifully said. Dr. Ribbon, what an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming and spending part of your morning with us. We really, really appreciate it. It was really my pleasure. I obviously enjoy talking about these things, but I really want to thank you for having a platform that enables us to have this conversation. And I hope that we will be able to continue it in the future. But I also really hope that all the people listening who either have IBD or or support and love someone with IBD are able to think about the disease in a new way now and really look to the future in a positive way. I think so. I think our conversation will make a lot of people feel really hopeful about what's coming down the pipeline and what's happening in the world. So thank you again. Thank you everybody else for listening and cheers, everybody. Cheers, everybody. Hey guys, this is Robin and Alicia. You have listened to our 100th episode with Dr. David T. Rubin. Can you believe it? So Robin, since it's 100 episodes, what's been your favorite part of this? My favorite part of this has been getting to talk to so many IBDers and providers that I have never met before. Originally, when we started out, we talked to people that we knew, but over the course of the past three years, I've gotten to meet so many of you and interview so many of you that just reached out to us randomly and said you wanted to be on the show. So that's been my favorite part, meeting so many of you. I agree. It has been a lot of fun. And frankly, even some of the, when we were interviewing people we knew, we learned something new about them every single time, you know, and so it's been really fun to get to know some of our friends in a different way and to hear all these hopeful messages. I think both of us just in talking to Dr. Rubin right now, just walked away feeling hopeful and feeling like our community is so connected and that's such a beautiful thing. So yes, thank you everyone for listening to a hundred episodes of us rambling and uh, we can't wait to give you even more episodes that are going to start in January so taking a little bit of a break but we can't wait for you to hear the guests that we already have lined up in 2024 and all of the amazing things that we're going to talk about in the future so thanks everyone so so much we really we are having so much fun (laughs) doing the show so thank you for being part of that cheers everybody cheers guys